Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast, I have amazing guests joining me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, yes, their life. You will hear absolutely profound and unforgettably inspiring stories, but more than that, you will receive takeaways to apply in your own life. The goal here is to have guests on this show that will inspire you to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, be, achieve, and impact even more through your life. Or maybe more simply said, so that you can live inspired. My friends, this episode today is of historical weight. Uh, The reason for that is when I was in fifth grade, I remember distinctly reading through American history. We got to a chapter about halfway through. It was bringing us up to the late 1970s, maybe early 1980s. And there was a picture of a young man who I learned later on was Rocky Sickman. And he was running toward a young lady who I learned later on would be his wife to be a gal named Jill Sickman. It was after Rocky had spent 444 days in Iran as a hostage. Uh, It's it's a, a drawn out, painful story on how he became a hostage in the first place, on how he endured 444 days, not only away from home, But as a hostage, blindfolded for great chunks, fearful the entire time, apprehensive the entire time, curious, would I ever go home? Would I ever return? Would I ever get to set my feet back on the soil, the soil that I had left a year and a half earlier? Would I ever get to see my mom and dad again? Would I ever get to see my girlfriend, Jill, again? Would she stick around for me? Would I return? Would I be okay? Not only does he come back, but this man builds a life. He builds a family. Rocky has three children. He's now got two grandbaby babies. He continues to impact and inspire through his work today on part of Folds of Honor. It's an incredible charity that he has helped generate great attention for and great dollars for to touch the lives of those men and women who have served our country. Rocky is alive and well and living inspired, but he has never forgotten what it was like to spend 444 days in captivity. He has never forgotten about the eight men who gave their lives trying to rescue him when he was a hostage. He has remained humbled and grateful and aware that he is fortunate, that he is blessed, and his story today, my friends, will remind you that so are you. We have men and women tuning in from more than 100 countries. We're honored and blessed by that. But this is a story, I think, of historic consequence, not only as an American, but for each of us living in this world that has these borders, that has this anger, that has all this tension, and the possibility of knocking down some of these walls, knocking down some of that tension, and coming back to remind us again that anger is taught and that love and forgiveness is also taught. So open up your minds, open up your hearts, and get ready for a guy with an awful lot of energy and a beautiful story to share. His name is Rocky Sickman. You ready for him? Here he comes. Rocky Sickman, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. It's an honor to be here with you. Man, I'm I'm, uh, sitting across from someone that I idolized as a child, and we'll come back to that story and back to the reason why I I looked up to you to such a high degree and such a high level as a kid. But let's talk about what your life is like today, Rocky. I'm sitting across from you. you got a good-looking blue shirt on, a big smile on your face. (laughs) Tell me, what keeps you busy these days? Well, right now, what keeps me busy is a wonderful opportunity working for Folds of Honor. Just retired from Budweiser after 34 wonderful years. But Folds of Honor is a great organization, John, that provides scholarships to families of our fallen and disabled military because 
you know, 37 years ago, I was in a, an event where eight people lost their life trying to come over to rescue me. Mm. And I have never forgotten those eight people. I never forgot those families that were destroyed when those individuals never returned home. I did. And I've had a second chance in life. And you know what that's like, mm -hmm. having a second chance. And you either uh, make it or you, you go the opposite way. And I've been uh, enjoying my, my days each and every day. And the man upstairs, he reminds me all the time about how lucky I am. So, so it, you're active in folds of honor, and I want to I want to make sure we come back to that by the end sure. of the show. And do you have family? I do. I have uh, three wonderful children: uh, Hannah, my oldest daughter; two wonderful, uh, beautiful grandchildren: Leela, she's six, and Rhett, uh, like Rhett Butler, he is yes. uh, five. And then my wonderful son-in-law, Matt, and I've got my second daughter, Chelsea. She's 28, and she got married last year, and she's got a brand new baby, a two-month-old Woody Woodson, uh, and then. I've got my wonderful son, uh, Spencer, uh, an actor. Ever since he was seven years old, he wanted to be an actor. His first movie was Argo, something about the Iran hostage crisis. And again, I can tell you that synchronicity. <laughs> and then I've got my wonderful uh, wife, uh, Jill, 35 wonderful years. Uh, she's been my psychiatrist. She's been everything to me. I mean, and that's why I've got this blue shirt, why I'm all put together the way I am, because uh, she, she helps me each and every day. So that's what life is like today. You've mentioned a couple times already, 37 years ago, you had this massive event, but I want to back the tape even farther up. Yeah. Where were you born? Tell me about your childhood. Sure. I was born here in St. Louis uh, in Overland. Uh, interesting enough, Overland is the uh, the place that Jill and I, my wife and I, bought a house, our first house in 1981. But I was uh, yeah born in uh, St. Mary's Hospital. We moved out to the country. Uh, my father wanted us to, you know, get to know the country. Uh, he had to drive back and forth. I come from a family of, of five, myself included. My oldest brother, uh, Gordon, uh, my oldest sister, Judy, uh, Debbie, my next sister, and myself, my little brother, Kurt. Hmm. And uh, my wonderful parents, God love them, they uh, retire, or retired. They uh, passed away um, basically six years ago. Right. Uh, again, um, I was buried by the gentleman that married us, Father Kinsel, another story that you have to put down. I got a lot of stories, John. But it, it my parents taught us, John, uh, love of country, love of faith, and, uh, you know, just love of family. And, you know, that's that's what we, we did. And uh, those are things that definitely kept me alive for 444 days. Um, you, you and your five, four siblings grew yeah. up on a farm. Was it uh, everything that I would expect childhood to be like on a farm? Well, it wasn't so much a farm, although my, my grandmother had the farm. We used to work that. Uh, we had about an acre. had a, a garden in the back, and I used to, uh, I mean, cut grass for $5. I'd cut an acre with a push mower. Uh, you know, in the wintertime, I'd grab or I would shovel the snow for little... Uh, homes next to us for five dollars, mm -hmm. freezing. But a, a small community uh, mm -hmm. growing up, and I went to high school in Washington, Missouri. I was a captain of my football. I mean, I love sports. Uh, I wasn't a good studious person. I, I just, I knew that there was more outside of Washington in Crockle, Crockle, where I grew up, a small town of fifty, and that was dogs and cats included. <laughs> so, but I knew that there was more outside of Crockle. Went to Washington, you know, graduated, and I, I joined the Marine Corps. And I, I wanted to see the world, but I wanted to be a Marine security well, guard. Tell me why you joined the Marines. I was at home one day, uh, and I was reading a New York Times, and it, it had a picture of a Marine, see the world, join the Marines. So I get my dad's blue pickup truck, and I drive to Union, Missouri, and I meet the uh, Marine Corps recruiter. And I said, hey, I want to do this. What does it take? He goes, well, let's do some testing. So, again, did the testing. He comes back. He goes, yeah, you could do that. And I said, before I do that, I want to see the world. And he goes, I got the perfect opportunity. I said, what's that? He goes, it, uh, it is a 0311 infantry. Yeah. He goes, you're going to see the world, and then afterwards you can do that. I said, perfect. And I did this uh, before my senior year. So I did a delay entry program. So that night, John, I go home, and this is during the time that my parents would sit us all down, and we'd all eat together. And my father and mother would go around the table and say, what did you do today? Mm. And I, you know, my father comes to me and goes, Rocky, what did you do today? I said, Dad, I joined the Marine Corps. And he kept eating. And 
finally he goes to tell everybody what you did. And I said, Dad, I, I joined the Marine Corps. And he stops and he looks at me. He goes, Tony, tell Rocky to tell us what he did. Tony was my mother. And so he didn't believe me. And I said, no, I, I joined the Marine Corps. So I, I never could understand. He was Army. Uh, and again, my parents taught us the, the love of country. Yes. I mean, every American Legion, every VFW, every I used to raise the flag when I was in grade school. And it was an honor to raise the flag. And I knew it represented our country, but I didn't know how important that flag was the freedom, and how people had died for it, you know, to provide us what we have to this each and every day. And so I, my father was Army, my brother was Army, and uh, I wanted to serve, and I also wanted to see the world. And so um, had an opportunity to uh, go to a small uh, college for football. My coach, I told him that, hey, you can, you know, get rid of that. I've joined the Marine Corps. And he just, uh, Coach Galen, God love him, a man that uh, uh, I remembered when I was held captive, all the football games and, you know, uh, the teaching of if you really want something, you have to work hard mm-hmm. for it. Um, he was a guy that really was there. And But after I told him that I joined the Marine Corps, he goes, hey, if that's what you want, you know, go for it. So, um, sure enough, I graduated and uh, headed off to San Diego, uh, California. And from there, I went to Asia. Uh, Asia, I came back, and my sister at that time had uh, introduced me to a girl that, um, at that time, John, it was before we had uh, texting. Yes. I mean, it was all letter The old writing. days, that's yeah. right. And my sister wrote me and said, hey, I, I, I hooked you up on a blind date with this girl I, I met at the uh, hospital, uh, candy striper and so i said okay uh, who is it and you know this is back in months back mm-hmm. and forth uh jill ditch and i knew jerry and joey ditch from high school but i never knew a, a jill ditch so speed it up a little bit and sure enough i come home and i'm thinking okay if anything it's going to be good to see jerry and, and uh, judy judy had uh, married jerry uh, from high school and so it's not going to be a, a you know a blowout if I don't like this girl. So yes. I knock on the door, and all of a sudden this door opens, and there stood this beautiful woman. And I'm like, Jill Ditch? And she goes, what happened to your hair? Because <laughs> right. she remembered me with hair, but I don't remember her in high school. She was a freshman. She was the smallest girl in high school. Well, after, you know, leaving in the military and, and she grew up through the uh, high school ranks, she prospered and uh, she basically bloomed like a beautiful woman. And so that's, uh, we first met there and she was just getting out of high school and uh, we were very young. And I said, hey, I'm heading to Europe and I'm coming back and I got one more thing I want to do. And she goes, that's good because I'm going to go to college for dancing. And uh, so my parents growing up always taught us the love of faith. And so my mother and father always said, Rocky, now make sure that you go to church. So it just so happened that, uh, you know, when I was in the service Sunday morning, I would uh, basically uh, Camp Geiger, North Carolina, a uh, small little white chapel. I went over there and met this priest, Father Kinsel. Little did I realize that this priest would be the priest that was the liaison between the Marines and the State Department mm-hmm. while I was held hostage. Uh, so Father Kinsel, obviously, um, speed up the story, I'm held hostage, I come back. Um, well, Meanwhile, he meets my mom and dad for the first time, John. He flies into St. Louis, drives 70 miles out to Crockle uh, while I was held hostage, and he goes, I'm I'm the liaison between uh, you and, and the military, Mr. Sickman, and by the way, I know your son, Rocky. And my mother was like, well, how do you know right. Rocky, Father? And he goes, well, he used to go to church on Sunday. Well, I was the golden child in the whole family after, you know. Well, that my probably mother, lit her up, man, hearing that. Absolutely. So he uh, obviously meets my mom and dad, meets uh, Jill. And so, um, you know, Jill fell in love with Father How long Kinsel. had you dated Jill before you left for About, Iran? I'd say maybe a year, year and a half. How committed to you was she and how committed to you were yeah she was i mean again a beautiful woman that um you know i just thought that you know she wasn't going to be there when i came back that um because she had so much um opportunity to to prosper and you have to understand john being taken hostage that that november 4th of 1979 i mean i thought we were forgotten because you know what I'm sitting there remembering it's 79, the Vietnam War. Right. 
And nobody remembered the Vietnam War veterans. And just like as we sit in this room right now, John, imagine these windows being broken out. And you're in a corner of a room, and you can't see outside, but you could hear everything. Mm-hmm. So in the morning, you would hear the noise of the traffic build, and then in the evening, it would die down to nothing. And so as you sat in the corner of the room, you realized that nobody remembered the Vietnam War veterans, and you know that the world's going on without you because you can hear you the hear traffic, and everybody's right. going on, and nobody cares. So l- l- let's dive into it, Rocky. Tell Tell me about November 4th, 1979. What do you remember about it? Yeah, it was uh, a day that obviously changed my life, and little did I realize. Um, I had just gotten off guard duty that morning and uh, went up to my uh, my apartment um, and basically uh, you know, cleaned up, came back down, and the embassy was a 23-acre compound. Mm-hmm. And in back of the embassy is where our apartment was, came across the street, had breakfast. Just so happened to have breakfast with three. Did you watch, You've seen the movie Argo? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The movie Argo talks about uh, the movie of six people, Americans, mm-hmm. that escaped that morning from the visa building in the back of the embassy. I had breakfast with three of them that morning. Little did we realize that four hours after our breakfast— our lives would never be the same. We're sitting there talking about, John, how the Marine Corps birthday was coming up and how it was going to be a fun little gathering of all embassies coming over to celebrate the Marine Corps birthday. So they head off to the the visa building. I walked down to the main uh, chancery where uh, Billy Gallegos was on guard duty at the time. And I said, hey, Billy, I got to go out in town, got to take some stuff to the cleaners, get ready. And whenever you um, went outside the, the compound in the vehicle, you had to have an, an Iranian driver. So I walked out of the front building and we had to well, and just to set the, the stage was how were relationships between the U.S. and Iran back then? Yeah, and that's what I was going to get into is that uh, back then the Shah had left, uh, fled the country of Iran in 1979, January. And so he was the dictator of Iran. And so he went into exile. It just so happened I got there October 7th. It was about a week, two weeks right after I got there. Um, we had gotten information that the United States was going to allow the Shah of Iran into the United States for humanitarian medical reasons. And so we had communicated that, hey, if you do this, you know, things aren't going to be you know good for the people here because there had been... 29,000 Americans in Iran as of January of 1979. All of a sudden, I get there October 7th, they're 65. Mm. So it wasn't good, but we were trying to keep relationships because he was, he, uh, Shaw was out of country, a new exile came in, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, and we thought relations were good. But obviously, each day, um, you know, at the point that we found out that Shaw was in country, demonstrations were daily. And those demonstrations were death to America, death to America. What, right what were they really demonstrating? What, what was their hope that the U.S. or the you Shaw, guys would do? The Shaw would return, John. If the Shaw would return, they would be very happy. So that morning in November Why did they 4th, want the Shaw to return? Uh, to stand trial for an atrocities that he had supposedly had done in country. And, you know, the interesting thing is 37 years later, I look back and all the things that they claim that the Shaw had done, I wonder, really, did the Shaw do as bad as what has happened in the country yes. of Iran. I mean, I don't know if you've ever followed the human rights in Iran are incredible. I mean, it just, um, I don't think that the people are as happy now as what they thought that they weren't uh, happy mm-hmm. when the Shah's in power. But yeah, that was that day of November 4th. They, uh, they came over the wall um, uh, thinking that if they took Americans, um, that that the United States would give the right. Shaw back. Well, obviously, I knew better that we weren't as important as, uh, you know, starting a war, um, negotiating. I mean, 65 people were killed the first minute of the Vietnam War. Who remembered those people? Nobody. So who's going to remember 65 people in a foreign country? Because each day, John, I'm telling you, the first uh, 30 days sitting in a chair, tied to a chair, I mean, at night, they would untie you and put you on the floor and tie your, your wrist to your ankles, and that's where you slept. You weren't allowed to speak to anybody. So all those memories of growing up in Crockle, 
every baseball game, every football game, every basketball game, every sleigh ride down A. Holds Hill, playing hockey on Bestie's mm-hmm. Pond, my mother making pancakes. I used to sit there in the corner of the room. I used to watch my mother pink, make the pancakes mm-hmm. and watch the batter uh, bubble. And she would put a stick of butter, cut the pieces on top, put it onto a plate. I'd get the maple syrup out of the little uh, container, pry it open, get the you know the syrup, mm-hmm. pour it in, and I would actually eat the pancake in that corner. I mean, those were the things that kept my sanity because you know each day, day one, day five, day ten. It was getting very difficult. You you hated how, yourself. How were they treating you back then, Rocky? Well, I mean, they were scared of us as we were scared of them. Uh, but they were thinking that by them taking us, the Shaw was going to return very quickly. I mean, they really thought, Jam, that by them taking us, that the United States. I, on the other hand, being a military person, thinking there's a fleet. There's a there there's um, a huge fleet out there in the Mediterranean waiting to come in to get us. Because I was on that fleet in January of 1979 when the Americans were taken hostage or taken in Iran, and we had what 48 hours to get uh, what 20,000 Americans out of country. They flew in o- over all these uh, 747s. We were on standby to go in to help rescue. So I'm sitting there day one thinking I'm going to start They're hearing coming. helicopters. Right. They're going to come rescue. But then you're thinking, why would they risk a war? because there was still that threat of war with Russia. Why would they want to tie us into a, a military war? And again, very lonely each day as you heard the traffic build and decline, and then the next day would come. And it was like nobody's going to remember. When, when you're in these spots, say a, a month out, what, what, what keeps you going? Um, just, uh, again, my faith, uh, I prayed, I'd never prayed so hard in my life. And, you know, my parents always taught us that, yeah, someday you're going to, you know, need God and you're going to wish that you had him. And she was so right. My mom and dad, um, I mean, I used to serve in Catholic, uh, grade school out in Krakow and, you know, I went through the motions, but I didn't, again, as that flag, I had no idea that day of November 4th, when we opened the door to give ourselves up how that American flag, what it represents is freedom and freedom's not free. And that day they took us and tied us up and that was first 30 days tied to a chair. John, we, we were locked in a room about the size of this room right here uh, for 444 days. I went outside. And how many people were, were with you Myself and two others. On November 4th, 65 Americans were taken. I did not know that there were 52 of us left until January 20th. 1981, when we boarded that airplane to leave. But, I mean, to be locked in a room Mm -hmm. for 444 days, went outside seven times out of 444 days. To go to the restroom, if I knew that the restroom was down to the left, to the right, I would have to knock on the door, and I'd have to put a piece of paper underneath the door. They had locked, uh, Mm -hmm. sealed our door, and they would unlock the door, and if we knocked too loud, they'd tell us that we'd have to wait. And we'd have to go to the restroom in a can in our, our room with two other people in a room. I mean, there was no privacy. The first 30 days, if you wanted to take a bird bath, mm. there was no bath. Uh, a bird bath was what I never realized in Marine Corps, how them teaching us how to survive with a bar of soap and running water in a slab. I had no idea what the hell they were doing, John, because in the other room, there was a washing machine right, and a dryer. But they were teaching us the life survival things, which I never realized that someday I would need those. That bar of soap became my toothpaste, and my finger was my toothbrush. You talked earlier about your your family taught you the love of family, of faith, and of the flag of the yeah. country. Was there a time, whether it's that first month or the next uh, 444 days that are going to follow the day you're taken, where you wondered if all three had abandoned you? Um, well... I can tell you, I mean, it, for 444 days, the first 30 days, I can tell you, um, at the end of those 30, 40 days, I realized that my health was deteriorating. I wasn't eating because how do you feel like eating when you have a gun to your head? You just, you don't feel like eating a smorgasbord. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until then that I realized that they were getting the best out of, through all the interrogations that they were putting us through. And what they were trying to get us to do was to make derogatory statements against our government and basically begging for them to release the shawl. And I wouldn't do it. 
And so whenever you didn't do it, your treatment got worse. So, but I realized that I was not going to let them get the best of me. So I had to basically get healthy again. And so health was nothing more than whenever they sat you down to eat bread and tea, you had to eat. Mm. I mean, because there was no refrigerator to go get any leftovers or anything. So um, love of, uh, of my faith, I mean, I would sit there and after we were put into a room, there's so many stories, but this one specific story, as I had uh, documented in my diary, which I never realized that someday I would actually have printed a book. Mm-hmm. My teachers back in high school, uh, they were shocked, as I was. Um, but it was nothing more than a day-by-day um, of what was happening. And one specific night, it was really tough um, because you're in a room with two other people. I mean, imagine two other males in a room with you and you're locked and you have to live in that locked room for 444 days. Um, This one night we lived on a three inch foam mattress. Billy was laying down. He had already gone to sleep. Jerry was gone to sleep and I'm sitting there looking at underneath the door and I could see the light from underneath the door, the corridor and the guard was walking back and forth. And I remember saying, God, give me a sign by telling me that you're still with me and I'm going to make it out. And as I said this, John, um, the door vibrates. The door vibrated so hard that Billy and Jerry jumped to their knees. And we always said if the door opens abruptly, get prepared because you don't know if they're going to come in and start shooting or what. I'm still laying down. My eyes are bulging because as I see, the guard walks right up to our door. I can see his feet. Um, his uh, feet run underneath the crack of the door and he opens the door and he goes, Chee, which means what? We didn't knock. He goes, no, you knocked. What do you want? The door had vibrated so hard. He realized, Billy and Jerry realized, and I knew what I had just asked for. And so, but that was February of 1980. So, I mean, we weren't released until January to go. of 19. So to this day, John, I mean, the man is still up there. I mean, I, I can, I'm human. I like to, you know, sleep in, but not too long ago, I had to catch a six o'clock flight. And as I'm uh, getting up, I'm like, you know, dragging around. I go uh, to a convenience store. I buy a uh, breakfast bar, a water and a banana. I go up to pay and it, my cost was $4 and 44 cents. And it was like, you're right, God. I shouldn't be complaining <laughs> that I got to get up early. Does that number seem to show up in your life a lot? Freaking incredible! Yeah, it, it, it's incredible how it pops up. Uh, when I mean, it does, are you uh, taking it back in a negative way? Do you feel blessed? Are blessed. You just no, 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 it's blessed. I mean, it's blessed because he's reminding me, Rocky. My worst day was when I was, um, you know, during these interrogations, they would bring in political prisoners and people that had been, you know, their legs boiled off in hot tar and whipped and you name it. And um, then all of a sudden they would role play these things like they're going to do it to us. So they would bring these folks in to show what they've done to other people like oh, you. Oh, yes. And then they would role play. And so the one of the worst ones was when they had... Uh, taken three people into a, a courtyard, um, stripped nude, and faced a wall, and they were shot in the back of the head. Well, they role-played that. And that that was my freaking worst day of being held hostage. I mean, the 444 days were tough, but that is something that you just don't forget. When you, you said know? they role-played it, does that mean they took you, they, they walked you outside, they stripped you naked? Put me into the basement. They took us out of our room one night about 2 o'clock in the morning, and all the hostages are out there, and we're all... I mean, your your hands are just, they're releasing water like they're just flowing of water. And your hands are sliding down the wall. And all of a sudden, you can hear other hostages saying, hey, if you hear the helicopters, you know, you got to take them out. And all of a sudden, they, they grab you and throw you into a room. And all of a sudden, in this room, they say, undress. And so your mind starts coming back to this role play that they had done of stripping uh, these individuals, mm-hmm. strip nude. And then they told you to turn against the wall. And as you turn against the wall, you can hear them bolt the rifle. Mm. And I mean, so that, that to me is When, when something. that happens and you, you are at least sure that you may not make it through the night, Rocky, where, where do your thoughts even turn? You know, mean, what, what, where's your focus <laughs> when you're hearing a rifle? 
that, that it's, snapping sound. It's, it's, for me, it was my past. I mean, just things were just flying through so quickly uh, of wonderful, uh, wonderful times. But it was, you know, times that you thought you're never going to have a chance uh, to ever uh, experience again. And, John, I'm telling you, it was one of those that you just, when they told you to put your clothes on, it was just, you know, after they pulled the trigger, mm. you just, you, you sank to your knees. And, I mean, this was like day, what, maybe 90. Yes. And so I've got all my fingers, yes. i got all my toes, but you'll never know what they did to us. Um, psychologically, I mean, by locking us in a room yes. and depriving us of our, our, our sleep, our freedom, our, our food, you name it. The things that we take for granted that that flag represents, it, it's just when you, so When incredible. you're with the same men and women for 444 days, these captors, do is there relationships that begin to bloom somehow out of the most unlikely of situations or did they never open up themselves to, no, to become your friends? Were, there were people, and I, I truly believe that there were some of the, the guards, the guards that would come to the door, like to take us to the restroom. Whenever we'd knock on the door to go to the restroom, they would come, unlock the door, open the door, and we'd have to be blindfolded mm. and then taken to the restroom, even though we knew where the restroom was. Every time you left that, that room for 444 days, you had to be blindfolded. So they would have different guards. And so we would give them names. Some of those individuals were Ali the Cook. So Ali, they're, they're, all their names were Ali. So we gave Ali the Cook. He would come. We had three plates by our door. He would come. You could hear him pushing his cart down uh, the corridor. And all of a sudden he would stop, unlock the door, open the door, grab the plates, close the door, lock the door, put the food on the plates, unlock the door, open the door, put the food down on the floor, close the door, lock the door. Mm -hmm. And then you would sit there occasionally and you try to talk to him and very simple individual he was. Some spoke English, some weren't. A lot of them were educated yes. right here in our own country, John. And so at night though, at two o'clock in the morning, that's when you would get some of those that, you know, you would try to get information from. And so when you went to the restroom, you would come back and when they would put you in, and before they'd close the door, you'd open the door and say, hey, so uh, what's going on today? And so some would say, oh, things are going good. and But some would just say it's just a pass the time and close the door. Mm -hmm. You never really had a chance to go out to lunch or dinner. I mean, it was just they were in and out. When, uh, it, when did you learn first about the the Marines, the Air Force, the Army folks who were in the helicopter yeah. coming to, to make the rescue. So that rescue attempt, uh, John, that was uh, April 25th, 1980. I can remember being held hostage and locked in a room. Again, uh, broken windows. You would hear everything go on, and so you analyzed what was happening. And this specific day, things were much different than the norm. And all of a sudden that night, I don't know, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock that night, they came into our room very quickly handcuffed me to uh, Jerry, handcuffed my other hand to Billy, and then blindfolded us. Took us downstairs and not saying a word. Take us downstairs, put us into an embassy vehicle, and that's where Billy went in first and then handcuffed Billy to the left side of the van. I'm in the middle, Jerry's to the right, handcuffed Jerry to the right side of the van. Blindfolded, handcuffed from the passenger side, they take a picture, you could see a flash through your blindfold. It's like, what the heck is this all about? And then they put a blanket over top of us. So they put a blanket over top of us, and that was 9 o'clock or so that night, and they drove us till 12 o'clock the next day. And so if you had to go to the restroom, John, you had to do it on yourself. Mm -hmm. There was no stopping in the convenience store. We had no idea that the Iranians had found the charred CH-53, the helicopter, and the C-130 along with the charred bodies. And so they thought that the Americans were still coming to get us. And so with that said, we were all in the Chancery the morning of April 25th. Had the rescue attempt occurred, we would have all been there. And the United States was supposed to have had some of the individuals that were guarding us that were supposed to be on our side to prevent them from shooting us as we sat in our room. So, again, you don't know if it would have happened, uh, would have been successful. But we really did not get the true story until after being released. Did any of the hostages 
die while they were in Iran or you know, no no um, Richard Queen became very ill and we didn't realize that and again on November 4th of 1979 I see you I don't see you again until January 20th 1981 we're all separated mm-hmm. we're all in our own little uh, locations so but Richard Queen supposedly it came down with MS while he was over there and uh, we had heard that uh, found out after uh, that he had been let go so what eventually led to this 444 day captivity ending what cre- yeah what why, came- why were you finally free to go home so uh, great story so um, after leaving Iran uh, we we left to go to another location and then that night we were able to clean up we then left to go to another location and um, it was about September of 1980 all of a sudden um, we could start hearing explosions in the distance it was the Iran Iraq war John that was going on but we had no idea the explosions were so loud and so close they came into our room one night uh, handcuffed us, blindfolded us, took us and put us down into a vehicle and drove us off. And we knew that it was very quick that they did this because they had to stop for fuel. So here we are in a convenience store and you could hear Iranian people speaking right next to mm-hmm. your vehicle, talking to a young daughter. They brought us back to Iran. They uh, then put us into prison. So uh, I spent September, October, November, December uh, in an in Iranian prison. And in prison, we find out that the Shaw dies. It was in a sporting news magazine from St. Louis, Missouri. One sentence that stated, due to the death of the Shaw of Iran, the tennis tournament was postponed. And we go over to the door and we pound on the steel uh, prison door and said, hey, the Shaw's dead. Why are we here? And the guard, he is not dead. We don't believe that he is. They would not let us see his body. So we spent our second Christmas, um, our second Thanksgiving, our second Christmas, and it got to the point um, that you really, um, I mean, you were hopeful, but you just, you didn't want to live anymore. Right. Um, every time they would open a door, we would throw the door open. They would come with the rifles, and we'd stick the rifle in our mouth, and, and we told them, shoot us. Put us out of our misery. And some people did uh, try to commit suicide because, I mean, it's you can only take so much for so uh, long. And it was January 20th, uh, 1981. They come into our room and uh, they blindfold us and they take us from our room and they take us outside and they'd taken our shoes from us in March of 1980. And uh, I walked outside that night, I'm blindfolded, and I walked in something I hadn't felt for two years, snow. <laughs> and it was so cold, and it was running through my toes, and I can remember the snow hitting me in the face. Uh, as I'm walking through the snow, um, they put us onto a vehicle, turned me around, set me down, and all of a sudden the vehicle starts off, and it scrapes the right side of uh, this tree. And these things, John, I mean, it's post-traumatic stress. It occurs when you have a traumatic time in your life. Ours was a 444-day post-traumatic stress. But this last night, it's the vehicle, it scrapes this uh, tree, it jumps a curb, turns right, and it goes for, I don't know, about 30 minutes or so, and all of a sudden it turns right again, and you hear the sound of this jet engine. And we, your heart starts pounding because you had prayed you had hoped, you had cried for this opportunity of being freed. And all of a sudden you're behind this jet and the vehicle that you're in, you can feel the force and you can hear the guard say, unblindfold. And here you are unblindfolding for the first time to see you know, yourself that you hadn't seen since November 4th of 1979. You look bad, you smell bad, and you're in shock. Mm. So we get off this this vehicle that we have been uh, taken to the airport, and we board the back of this airplane. And uh, it wasn't uh, an American; um, he was Algerian. And he says, "Please be boarded very quickly. We must leave." And we get onto this plane, and something else I hadn't seen for 444 days was a female. Hmm. Here's a beautiful uh, airline stewardess, Algerian. She goes, "Please, we must be leaving very quickly." We've been here since January 17th. Come to find out, John, that the United States released $8.3 billion on January 17th of 1981. 
to release the hostages. But Iran wanted to do the last straw. They wanted, and they told us this in our interrogations. It is not you, the American people, we hate. It's your government. But we will use you to humiliate Mm -hmm. your government. And that's what they were doing. The United States paid Iran $8.3 billion in gold on January 17th. That airplane arrived. They didn't release us until January 20th. We're all on the airplane. All of a sudden, they start closing the door. We said, wait, wait, where's uh, where's Al? Where's Sally? Where's Fred? Oh, they were released a year earlier. Had no idea that you were the only 52 left. The pilot gets on and says, please be seated. We must leave very quickly. He gets down to the end of the uh, runway. He turns left, turns left again. He's got his foot on his brake, and he starts accelerating. And the plane's shaking, and all of a sudden it comes back down to an idle. And, I mean, it's like all the mock firing squads, the Russian roulette, it's like they got to screw with yes, us to the last one more minute. time. Well, it's because the inauguration. Carter was still in power. They waited 20 minutes, John until President Carter was out of office. And this wasn't about a Democratic thing. It wasn't about a Republican thing. The Iranians wanted to humiliate the American government. And not only did they humiliate President Carter, what did they do to President Reagan, but the Iran-Contra affair. Remember that war, Iran and Iraq? Mm -hmm. They needed weapons because all the weapons that Iran had were weapons that we had sold them. So they had to take more hostages. So they went to Beirut. And so again... Strike one, they took us. That's like somebody, you know, it's like the Japanese uh, uh, attacking Pearl Harbor. And we just said, oh, you know what? We had it coming to us. And we walk away. We didn't. There was a there was a situation and there was a consequence when they attacked Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. When they attacked us in our embassy, has there ever been a consequence for Iran? No. They've never been held accountable. So why wouldn't Iran go and take more hostages in Beirut? And so sure enough, we got caught doing an arms uh, embargo piece, and we said, we're not playing anymore. Iran said, no, you either play or pay. Iran, uh, we said, no, we're not playing. What's Iran do? But they killed 240 Marines in Beirut. Strike two, John. And again, we knew that it was Iran, and what did we do to hold them accountable? Nothing. So I had my finger on the trigger of a sawed-off shotgun the morning of November 4th when through the basement window, the Iranians came and who they brought first were Iranian women. Iranian women could not even vote in 1979, but they brought them first because they knew that American soldiers would not shoot unarmed innocent women. But if they did, they would have taken those women and paraded them. So I regretted not ever pulling that trigger. And as I regret to this day, because everything I see, I truly believe that the war on terrorism, it started the morning of November 4th, 1979, when Iran attacked an American embassy, we've never held them accountable. And they continued to humiliate us to this day. And it hurts because I had a chance. Well, let's let's talk about the not only the flight, but also landing. I'm, I'm curious. So eventually, 20 minutes after the false start, Rocky, the engines turn back on. You yeah. lift up into the air. I'm certain it was not a direct flight back home, but eventually <laughs> you make it back to the U.S., what's the emotion like when that door opens up and you can start walking down steps? Yeah, and we landed at uh, Stewart Air Force Base um, up in New York, uh, and that's where we uh, came in contact with our family for the first time. It was my mom and dad, because as Marines, we were not allowed to be married. Uh, So my mom and dad, which that was a a very smart thing for the Marine Corps, because um, John, think about this. If you were taken hostage and you had Beth and the kids back home, how would that have eaten at you not knowing what was happening to your wife? How is she getting along? In fact, some of the hostages, one of the hostages had a handicapped son. The Iranians screwed with his mind knowing that he had a handicapped son that was dropped off at a specific location. They knew what location. They said, if you don't participate, we'll pick your son up for you. I mean, how, I mean, it's freaking devastating. So, but thank goodness I didn't have that responsibility. And, you know, when you put that and you take it away, um, it's a huge burden off your back. But other State Department had families. um, It it, it was devastating. But to see my mom and dad for the first time, it was wonderful. Um, And then I didn't get to see my brothers and sisters and Jill until about, I guess it was two days later, where we we stayed at West Point for a couple of days, and then we came back to Andrews Air Force Base, and 
Um, then they had a, a huge gathering. I uh, got to see, there's like this, this picture of Jill and I running, or she's running across. I don't know if you've ever That's seen That's what I've seen. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and my little brother. And so I, we just recently saw it in another event somewhere. I can't even recall where it was. But, you know, the only thing I wanted to do was give back to Crockle, Missouri. And my mom's homemade cooking, fried chicken, and just get back to normal Rocky Sickman days. PTSD, you mentioned this earlier, can yeah. happen after one bad day or one big explosion. Bag, I mean, a car accident, you could probably have post-traumatic Well, stress. you absolutely can, and, and you had 444. I know not all of the hostages had a wonderful reacclimation back into life. Yeah. Tell me about your experience. You know, my experience was, uh, and I can remember meeting a, a psychiatrist um, after we returned home. And, you know, we would make fun of the fact that, hey, we're young, we're military, nothing's wrong with us. But you, you were young and, and stupid back then. And, uh, but I can remember this uh, psychiatrist said that, you know, there's going to be two ways that you're going to handle this. Uh, some of you are going to be able to learn how to communicate and talk about it, mm-hmm. where others are going to just keep it inside and it's just going to eat you up inside. And I, I truly believe it, it's something that I have communicated. And, you know, my good wife, God love her, like I said, 35 years, she keeps me on track. And there's some things that bother her when I do talk about. But, I mean, I, I'm truly passionate. I feel obligated to talk about it because it, these are things that happen. Absolutely. And so it's something that um, I have been able to communicate and, again, telling the story about my, my daughter when, you know, I, I never told my daughter about who I was. And she is going to small little Catholic school down there. And at this dinner table, she goes, Daddy, can you come and, and talk to my class? And I said, well, Hannah, why would you talk want Daddy to talk to your class? She gets up, goes to her little book pack. How old is she, Rocky? Uh, she's probably in seven, six, no, sixth grade. Okay. And she goes to her book bag and she comes back with her book and she opens it up and she goes, daddy, cause we're talking about you. And there's a picture of me in the history book. That's why it was funny that you said that. But I mean, those were things that, wow, maybe, it, you know, it, it's something that I remember when I was in school learning about people in history books. And so I, I try to help teach. And I mean, I've told this story so many times to so many different organizations to young to old. Do you old. find that to be therapeutic to breathe this story out and to yeah, share what you've been through? Yeah, because again, it goes back to this Folds of Honor, the organization, you know, providing, uh, you know, these scholarships to families of fallen and disabled. Eight people lost their life because of me, John. How do you ever not, you know, remember those eight people? I mean, I, those people are on my mind constantly. And especially when I'm around my family, I'm enjoying my family, and they lost everything that Ru- morning. Rocky, how has that experience, 444 days, we keep saying that number, but it's such a huge one. I don't want people to lose sight yeah. of a almost a year and a half away from home and captive in all the wrong senses of that word, just abused while you're over there. Uh, how has that changed you for the wor- for worse? And secondly, how has it made you an even better version of yourself? You know, and I, I tell people how bad it was. But and, and again, I, reading your book, you people ask you, if you ever had the chance to do it over, would you do that day over again? Mm-hmm. And I think you said, yeah, I, I would do. Because it, it's what's molded you. Because I have no idea what I would have been like had I not gone through that difficult situation. Um, that made me who I am. And again, I I can remember uh, reading out of the Bible when I was over there. It said, go home and tell your people what these people have done to you. And here I am, 37 years later, I'm telling you about a situation that happened to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, a situation that could have been prevented, but it didn't. Mm. And it would have been one thing that they had released us and you know, they'd grown roses and invited people back, but it's only gotten worse. And so I'm just, I feel obligated and, and you know, saddened the fact that I had a chance to possibly do something, but I was following my orders that morning and I didn't. But what would have happened had I pulled the trigger? Yes. It's, it's one of those things of, boy, what, where would I be in time? Where would things be? I probably wouldn't be here. No, you probably um, not. But, There'd be three less children, two less grandchildren. Yeah, and less stories, I guess. No doubt about it. But what what do you uh, 
what do you tell your kids about that experience when when they're sitting around you on your lap and you're raising these kids? I know you didn't talk about it a lot as a younger man, but yeah. you talk about it today. What do you want them to know about their dad? Well, uh, about me is that um, I think if anything, they they hear it from me all the time. Is if you really want something, you put your heart, your mind, your soul, say some prayers, and you can survive because that's what that's how I survived. I mean, I those after those thirty days when I thought I was going to give up, I said they're not going to get the best of me. I <laughs> I just said they're not going to. They've screwed with me enough, and I'm not going to let it happen. So I I put my mind, my heart, and my soul in my small little room. I was doing over six hundred sit ups, <laughs> uh, three hundred push ups. I was walking back and forth, just trying to do something. Cause I was running seven miles a day, and now all of a sudden you're after you know being plucked from this freedom and being tied to a chair, you just start deteriorating. Mm -hmm. And being locked in a room, you start deteriorating. But, you know, I I kept my mind, my heart, my soul, um, and my love of my country, um, you know, and my faith and uh, my religion. And I tell them that, you know, those were the three things that uh, made me survive um, that could possibly help you. And so... I'm, it's only a story I'm telling you. And Billy, like you said, the other guy, Jerry, is no longer with us. You know, he died, uh, gosh, probably about seven years or so, eight years after uh, coming back. But Billy, his daughter calls me uncle. My children call him uncle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like after going through a situation like that, you become brothers for no for the rest of your life. And did the brotherhood extend beyond the room? So I know there were three locked in your one room, but did you feel as bonded with the other four dozen, five dozen? Um, the other hostages? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but it's not as close because, uh, I mean, here you, you fought. Billy and I would fight. I mean, there were things that would make us mad, and we would go at it. And But the Iranians, they wanted us to fight. And so you had to really— curtail your mm-hmm. your uh, frustration because uh, we were Marines and trust me every time that door opened I wanted to take that individual and just snap its neck but you knew that whatever you did was a consequence to somebody else being held hostage um, but no I mean the other hostages out of 52 there's only 36 of them left so we're gonna shift gears just a little bit and talk about uh not Iran but the the, the lady you love more than anybody else in life Jill You'd only been dating for a little bit before you left. Yeah. You disappear. She doesn't know for sure what's going on with you. What is it about Jill that kept this beautiful gal, dancing student, energetic woman, waiting for her boyfriend to come home? You know, I, again, I'm a very simple guy, but she knew I came from a, a, a wonderful family, very simple family. My father was a truck driver. My mother, you know, uh, secretary carpet store. But we all loved family. We loved mm-hmm. to get together. And so she she knew that I was a different person coming home. And so she stayed with me and helped me, you know, to work through all these different issues. And so with that, um, I gave her, uh, you know, a chance, uh, that is, I gave her a chance. She gave me a chance. Uh, when I came home and I, uh, I called, she said either me or the military, but you gotta, you know, mm-hmm. you gotta make a decision. I chose wisely. Um, but I missed the military and, and she knew I missed the military, but I, I basically got out and came to work as a civilian and leaving the military, John, it's, you, you walk different, you talk different, yes. you dress different in the military and the civilian. So there's that transition, but that's why you've got American legions and VFWs around. That's where those guys and girls Come all go. Together. Yeah. Get back together. But it, during uh, real time, it's your work day as a civilian. You mm-hmm. do that. And so she has been uh, just an incredible person that's helped me stay on track, you know, getting me to understand the things that you have to do and don't. So uh, with that, we've had three wonderful uh, children. Uh, I lost both my parents. Like I said, you know, Father Kinsel, he was that guy that, um, you know, helped my mom and dad survive those 444 days. He married Jill and I in 1981. And seven years ago, he married Hannah, my mm-hmm. oldest daughter. Six years ago, he buries my dad in April, my mom in June. Five years ago, Father Kinsel uh, renewed Jill's and my vows at the Vatican. Uh, he married Chelsea and Kaylin last year. 
And so this is Father Kinsel. He's a family member now. Yeah. I hope you're getting a deal on all these services. No. You package it <laughs> on the front side. What would Rocky, your struggle is unlike any that I've ever heard of. You know, no one else has come out of 444 days away and, and uh, in prisons like you and through the torturous events that you endured. What would you tell those of us who are dealing with struggles in our own life today? It may not be exactly like yours, but everybody's got something going on. What's your encouragement to them? Well, and again, I, I told you the story about my worst time of being held was when I was stripped nude on that firing line, and I thought I, I freaking was it. And so having a chance to relive, um, I think everybody's got that bad time. And if they've been able, your story, I mean, my gosh, John, look what you, you've overcame and here you are, this wonderful individual, wonderful family. But you use that, knowing that you you survived that, you can survive anything. Mm. And that's that's what I do is I know that um, it's something that I've been able to overcome. It's something you never forget about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you don't forget about it. I don't forget about it. And it never will go away. I wish that they could zap it out. Uh, but it's always going to be there. Um, and whenever I hear the word Iran or mm. hostage or, you know, there are smells or things that just freaking trigger. But again, you have to, you know, settle down and I stay very busy. That's one of my, uh, I guess, alternatives to being really upset. I just stay incredibly busy. Uh, it keeps my mind uh, going towards making sure that the men and women that serve our country, that they're never forgotten their families. Uh, so it's just... Well, why, why don't we talk about that work right now? I know you're part of Folds of Honor. Yes. For those who don't know what Folds of Honor does, give give us the, a little bit of the background and, and tell us where we can learn more. Yeah, so uh, I was working at Budweiser and there was this gentleman that came up to Budweiser one day, Dan Rooney, and security called and said, hey, Rocky, there's this guy at the uh, front lobby. He's in a flight jumpsuit and he wants to talk to somebody about military. So being a military guy at AB for 10 years, whenever there was military, they would call me. So I went down and I met this Dan Rooney. And so I got a conference room. We went in, he told me his story. I told him mine. And really it's a, um, it's something that he and I connected because he was on a flight coming home uh, one day after being um, returning from uh, war in Iraq. He was an F-16 pilot and he boards the flight and there was a gentleman in first class holding the flag and he thought they had just given him an upgrade. Well, mm-hmm. as they land, they find out, uh, Dan and the other passengers find out that the guy was escorting his brother home. Mm. And so the pilot had asked for everyone to remain seated so that he could uh, get off and go down and they could remove the, the body out of the, the bottom uh, cargo. And so Dan looks out to the right, and he sees them remove the casket, and there next to the casket is the son of this young soldier. And so as after the, the piece was finished, a uh, pilot said, the th- uh, thank you, and Dan gets up. Well, he realizes that over three-quarters of the people left. Nobody cared. And so he went home and told his wife that he wanted to, you know, do something to make sure that people never forget the families of the fallen and and disabled. And so he came to St. Louis and met me. And so that was in 2010. And so since then, we've raised over Budweiser uh, over $10 million. (laughs) And so um, working with the the wholesalers and Anheuser-Busch. And so I retired this year and he said, Hey Rocky, I want you to come. And I said, Dan, and my wife even knew she goes, yeah, for you to continue your um, journey to help support the military. This is an incredible opportunity. And again, the God, the uh, synchronicity of God giving us that opportunity. So it folds of honor, uh, foldsofhonor.org. It's a wonderful organization that provides scholarships yeah. to families of fallen and families of disabled. So incredible. Well, man, you, you have endured so much. And the fact that you continually invest yourself, not only in your marriage and your parenting as a grandfather now, yeah. and now through Folds of Honor for those. So we never forget. Uh, I've, I've been on several of those flights when one of our young men or women have served and have lost their life overseas. And to see the way that we honor these men and women coming off these planes from the, the bottom of the plane and onto the tarmac, it's um, it's an experience I'll never forget. And, and that's something, John, that, again, it wasn't like that before. When I was in the service, 
um, you know, it was uh, Vietnam War. People didn't care about those right. guys. They were spit on. And it's interesting that after the Iran hostage crisis in 1983, we came home in 81, they built the Vietnam Wall. And so, so sad that it took years for that wall to be built and so many individuals that lost their life. But, you know, we know that we never treat our men and women that serve uh, like that. And we should always be thankful that, you know, again, knowing that freedom is not free. Well, it's not free. And uh, Rocky, we ask all of our guests on the Live Inspired podcast seven questions. It's one of the one of the threads that pulls every guest from Dave Ramsey to Rocky Sigmund together. (laughs) So I. With your permission, good sir, I'd like to ask you seven questions right sure. now as we begin wrapping up our conversation. Okay. Question number one is, what's the best book you've ever read? You know what? <laughs> Yours right now is, I've not read the whole thing, but you know what? Again, you talk about my story. I mean, my gosh, John, nine years old, you... Um, He's being paid for each word no, he speaks, no, speaks right serious. now around on fire. So I, keep going, Rocky. You're doing great. The, the synchronicity of the things that inspired you were things that you know made me, um, you know, to right. where I am now. So I mean, I your book was it, it's incredible. I appreciate that, and and the reason I, I love my book is because it's not really about me. It's about all the men and women who served and impacted and believed that miracles still happen. And Rocky, I'm looking across yeah. that one right now. So tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you with millions of dollars. What would you do with that money? Folds of honor. Awesome. Rocky, if your house caught fire and all living people, Jill, the kids, the grandbabies, all living things, the animals, are out of the house, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one thing from the house, an item, an heirloom, something that really mattered to you, what would you grab? Wedding album. Wedding album. 37 years yeah. into it. She was hot back then. She still is hot. She's still hot, man. <laughs> hey, let's, yeah. let's make sure we remind That's our listeners, right. including Jill, of that fact. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to sit on that bench with? Boy, you know what? Um President Carter, and it was interesting because uh, I heard an interview not too long ago with President Carter, and he said, President Carter, if you ever had your administration to do over again, what's one thing that you would have changed? And he, uh, in the interview, said, I wish I would have had one more helicopter because he had four helicopters that landed at Desert One, and three of them were mobile. He needed four. And so it's always something that's in his mind. So Love to hear his story and yes. him hear mine. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? What would I tell my 20-year-old? So if you had an opportunity right now to look back at this tough, chiseled, young Marine and and whisper something into your own ear years ago, what would you tell yourself? Be prepared for an exciting journey. <laughs> <laughs> I I, you know... Um, I, I think that's a, a perfect. Uh, I mean, it's been an incredible journey. I mean, I, I could not have even imagined a young kid from Crockle, Missouri. Um, I always wanted to do something, but right. wow, what I've gone through. It's just, uh, but yeah, just be prepared for incredible journey. What's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice. Um, never forget who, where you came from. Mm. And then finally, Rocky, it's been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. What would you want your one sentence to read like? <laughs> you know, this is, a, you, you, we talked about that earlier. All right, repeat it one more time. Yep. It's been said that all great people, and I'm looking at one right now, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. What would you want your one sentence to read? Rocky Sickman, Iranian hostage, 444 days of captivity. God bless America. (laughs) Well, Rocky Sickman, Iranian hostage, 444 days uh, in hostage. Captivity. 
God bless America indeed. God bless you, my friend. We appreciate you spending this time with us. Thank you, John. It's been an honor. My friends, for this time and until next time, that was Rocky Sigmund. This is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live Inspired. Well, thank you for joining me today on the Live Inspired podcast. That was our guest, Rocky Sickman. What a man. Been to the Oval Office, been all around the United States, all around the world, sharing this message of resolve, of courage, of forgiveness, and of resolute determination to make tomorrow even better than today. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed bringing this one to you, take a few moments, rate this show. You can review this podcast. It's a quick way that helps us get the word out. Although the show is still launching, we're just in season two yet. It's still climbing the charts. It's still touching lives. And yet what we know is that together with your help, we can inspire, we can impact, we can touch even more lives. So go ahead, rate the show, leave your comments, tell your friends, ring the bells, tell your neighbors, let them know that the movement has begun to live inspired. Have them check out the Live Inspired episodes with John O'Leary. My friends, for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary reminding you that this is your day. Live Inspired.